All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you. I hope you enjoyed that little clip. I think it sets the mood for what we're doing today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about some amazing things God has done today. And one of the amazing things we believe God can do is use what I'm about to say right now to shape our eternal destinies. So how about I pray that God would do just that? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word where you have laid out what happens after this life. I pray that now as we come to think about these things together, you would give us insight. Father, please help me speak with clarity so that we might have understanding. But Father, most of all, would you show us just how wonderful your plan for eternity is for those who trust in your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I I don't know if you've seen the show that that clip is from. It's a show called The Good Place, and I I haven't spoiled anything because that's the first scene from the first episode of that show. So that's really just the setup. That's the premise. You go home, you turn it on on Netflix, that's the first thing you'll see. And and that show is called The Good Place. You saw it. It's all about Eleanor, who has just died, and, and she's grappling with what it means to now be in the good place. And, um, you know, there's ups and downs, there's twists and turns. It's a, it's a very funny little show. If you've got nothing to watch this week, go check it out. Um, it is great. But what that show really does well in that very first scene is it throws in, fu- in front of us what many of us believe happens after we die. Uh, did you catch what Michael said? Uh, you know, there's... There's a good place and there's a bad place. And he implies that if the good stuff in your life outweighs the bad stuff, you get to go to the good place. But if the bad stuff outweighs the good stuff, you get to go to the bad place. And I think that that's how most people think. Or at least most people in Australia, in our, in our culture, and our climate, that's what many of us think. If my good outweighs my bad, I'll get to go to the good place. Although we don't really like thinking about the bad place, let alone whether I'll go there or not. We just think, yeah, if my good outweighs my bad, I'll go to the good place. Now, that show makes some assumptions, right? It makes some assumptions that I think the Bible would agree with and some that the Bible wouldn't agree with. So, for example, it agrees that it, it says there is a life after this one. A, a real physical embodied life, and the Bible would actually agree with that. That is actually a true picture of the afterlife. But Michael also says that everyone kind of guesses at what it's going to be. You know, he says all religions guessed about 5%, except for that guy Doug who guessed, what do you say, 95, 92, something like that. He says we can only guess. And I think for the most part that's true, except the Bible says... In Jesus, we can know. The Bible says through Jesus, we can know what happens after this life. Because without Jesus, right, we're in a position where guessing is all we can do. The only way for us to know what happens after this life is to, like Eleanor, die and experience it. But if we had someone who did that on our behalf, who came back and could tell us what the afterlife is like, what awaits us, then we could know what happens after this life. And I think that's really helpful because over the past two years, many of us have grappled with, well, life could end like that. It's really fleeting. It could be over. We've lost 
millions of people across the world to this plague, to this pandemic. And that's just, that's just the people who have died from the pandemic itself. People, people face their end all the time without any warning. I was speaking to a lady just the other week who I met for the first time who is facing a terminal cancer diagnosis. And you know how she's feeling? Scared. Scared because she doesn't know what happens after this life. And I, th- I think that's how many of us feel. The closer we come to the realisation of death, the more scared we get. The, the, the more we wonder, well, what's going to happen? What's, what's it going to be like? Will I continue? Will I cease to exist? Will I come back? We're afraid we don't know, so how can we get the answers? Well, like I've said, if someone goes and experiences it for us and comes back and tells us, we can have certainty. We can know if someone does what we cannot, goes and returns. And so today I want to introduce you to Jesus, who does exactly that. He has been to the other side of the grave and he has come back. He has come back and experienced what we cannot. And so he's not guessing what happens. He knows what happens, which can bring us great comfort when we're scared. And in fact, because of Jesus, we actually can be offered eternal life, life that goes on forever. So firstly, what I want to do is I want to give you some proof of Jesus' experience, some proof that actually, in fact, we can trust what he claims. We can trust what the Bible claims, that he has experienced death and come back. And then after that, we'll we'll hear what he has to say about life after death. So has he gone there? Yes or no? What does he have to say about it? And then lastly, I'll show you the offer that Jesus gives us of eternal life. That's where we're going. Uh, That's what I hope to achieve with you today. Um, After I'm done kind of getting through what I'm going to get through, we're going to have the opportunity to do some Q&A, like we have for the last few weeks in summer series. So if you have questions, jot them down, type them in your phone, something like that, uh, and hold them to the end, and and I'll do my best to bring you answers um, with what time we have left. But firstly, let's jump into some proof. Jesus died and rose again. Tim, how do you know? How how do we know that? Well, to begin with, Jesus actually predicted this would happen three times while he was alive. Three times he said, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be executed, I'm going to be buried, and on the third day, I'm going to rise back to life. Was his prediction accurate? It absolutely was. His prediction was accurate. In every single biography of Jesus that we have in the Bible, there's four of them, by the way, events occur exactly as Jesus predicted. He was arrested, executed, buried, and rose back to life on the third day. But that's, that's just in the Bible, right? So that's biased. What else do you have, Tim? Well, let me tell you. There's sources outside the Bible that actually confirm Jesus was a real person who was really executed by the Romans. A man named Josephus was a Jewish historian. He lived in the late first century. Jesus lived early in the first century. So Josephus comes a little while after Jesus. But he wrote a comprehensive history of the Jewish people. And in his history, he mentions a man named Jesus who was worshipped as God's sent chosen one, who was executed by the Romans. So not only does the Bible confirm Jesus was a real person who died, 
but people who don't even follow Jesus confirm he was a real person who died. But predicting your death is easy, right? Confirming someone's death is relatively easy. Predicting your resurrection, now that's a lot harder. But there is evidence for that as well. There is evidence that three days after Jesus died, he rose back to life. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 15, the the passage that Steve read just a little bit earlier for us. There's a bunch of different um, proofs and pieces of evidence we could look at. We're just going to look at this one today in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible with you, it'll be helpful to crack it out. If you don't have a Bible, you could look it up on your phone. Just Google 1 Corinthians 15 and you'll find it there. This, this uh, book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, is actually a letter. It's not really a book. It's a letter written by a man who witnessed Jesus risen from the grave. At first, he didn't believe, but once he saw Jesus, his whole life changed. And in fact, he went around the whole Mediterranean telling people Jesus really did rise from the grave. And, and he landed in a church in Corinth, a city in Greece, and he told people in Corinth and started up a little church there and moved on in his travels and he writes this letter to that church in Corinth that he started sometime earlier. Let me reread part of what was written, read for us, sorry. Let me reread part of what was read. Um, so in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. So just look for that little 3. It should be the second paragraph down from the 15. Paul, who wrote this, writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. After Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says that he made appearances. He appeared to people. He turned up in front of them and had conversations. One time he sat down and ate a meal with with some of his friends. This here says he appeared to more than 500 of his followers at once. That's like Jesus appearing to a full IMAX theatre in one go, strolling into the theatre and saying, hey guys, remember when I died, I'm alive again. 500 people at once. And Paul actually mentions many of them are still alive. Now, why would he say that if not to invite people to investigate for themselves? Many of them are still alive. You can talk to them yourself today. You you, you can travel to Jerusalem and speak to these men and women who saw Jesus and ask them for their account. And you don't have to just ask one. You can ask hundreds of people. And, And you can check, do their stories match? Do they line up? Did this thing really happen? You can cross-examine and corroborate these testimonies. Now, none of those 500 are still alive today. So we can't do that. But Paul's invitation to the Corinthian church back then actually gives us now lots of confidence that what he's saying is true. Think of it like this. Imagine I had some amazing news to tell. I caught a fish this big. I'm not a fisherman. I've never caught a fish this big, but just pretend. I caught a fish this big. How would I prove it to you? Well, when my friend uh, got out his phone to take a photo, he dropped it over the side of the boat. So there's no photos, I'm sorry. We're going to need some other evidence. What could I do to prove it to you? I could give you my friend's phone number and you could call him. 
He's got a new phone since he dropped it overboard, right? You could call him and you could check for yourself. So I write down his phone number, I give it to you. You can call him anytime you want. Now, whether you call him or not, you can have some confidence that what I'm saying is true because I'm willing to let you check. You, you could call him and he could say, nah, mate, Tim's dreaming. He caught a fish this big. Like, he could call me out at any moment. But I trust that he won't enough to let you investigate for yourself. That's what Paul's done. Whether we check with the witnesses or not, we can have confidence that what Paul has said is really true because of his willingness to let those first readers check for themselves. That's what's going on here. Now, that's still not conclusive evidence, right? We still do need more than that. Maybe those 500 people got paid off. Or maybe they all got together and said, hey, let's, let's come up with this fantastic story for some reason, for some power, money, whatever. Maybe they think saying that Jesus rose from the dead would be good for their reputation. They could have made that up. Here's the problem, though. Charles Colson was Nixon's, one of his closest advisors during the Watergate scandal. So close that he was actually... He knew what was going on. He knew all the misdeeds. He, w- he was in on it. A- and he reflected later. He- he'd become a Christian and he was investigating the resurrection and he reflected later that 10 men couldn't keep their story straight for two weeks. 10 men couldn't keep their story straight for two weeks. And as soon as the pressure started to get turned up, they all just cracked. In the Bible, we see 500 people saw Jesus. 12 of them preached him risen from the grave for 40 years and they were put to death for it and they didn't crack. There was no uh, discrepancies in their story. Why? Because they're talking about true events. They're talking about what actually happened. And in fact, it was so important that they told the truth that they would go to the grave for it. If it was a lie, they wouldn't die for it. Only if it was the truth. Now, there is more evidence than this. There's, I, I could go through more evidence till the cows come home, right? But we don't have time. But I hope you can see that a reasonable person could reasonably conclude that the man Jesus rose from the dead. There is evidence that he was raised back to life. Now, I, I, I encourage you to investigate this yourself more, right? It, I'm not pretending that I've convinced you in five minutes. Investigate this more, because if it's true, then Jesus really is the expert on life after death. And so as we look at his teaching, if he really has come back to life, we can hear it as the truth. But but you do need to investigate these things because they're life-changing things. If Jesus really did come back from the dead, it does change our life. It changes how we live now and it has a potential to change our eternal destiny. And so it's worth figuring out whether it's true or not. And here's the thing, if you investigate and you conclude that it's not true, that it's bogus, it's all made up, then that's a good thing too. You've found the truth. And in fact, you've found the truth that sets you free from whatever burden Christianity might put on you. And did you know that's the opinion of Paul himself who wrote this letter to the Corinthians? Just a few paragraphs after what we read, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. 
He's saying, if Christ isn't actually alive, if Jesus never rose from the dead, we're all wasting our time. He knows that if this isn't true, he should just give up what he's doing. But he's thoroughly convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so, investigate these things. Let me offer you uh, uh, one way to investigate and then something to put in your calendars for a bit later. There's a book that I've got here. It's called The Case for Christ. It's written by a man named Lee Strobel. He is an investigative journalist who was an atheist. And he decided, after his wife became a Christian, while he was still an atheist, he decided, I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to investigate it like it's one of my articles that I I write for newspapers, like one of my other investigations. And so he did what he always does and he went to the experts. He went to historians, both Christian historians and atheist historians. And, And he asked them a lot of tough questions about the Bible, about the accounts in the Bible, about the resurrection. And over the course of his investigation, he was so thoroughly convinced that these things were true that he actually started to believe them and he actually became a Christian because when he deeply investigated these things there was enough evidence and it was so persuasive that he decided to hand his life over to the Lord Jesus and this book here, The Case for Christ, is that investigation. It's his investigation that took him on a journey of being transformed from an atheist to a believer in a God who loves him and who would save him. And so I highly recommend this book. If you'd like to borrow this copy, you can. Or you can jump online and just search The Case for Christ. If you follow us on Facebook, we'll pop a post up about it this week and you can head to a bookstore and get it or or buy it online, something like that. But it's such a helpful book and there is a whole section just dedicated to Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And it says much more than I've been able to say here today. I highly recommend this book. It is so helpful. It's been personally helpful for me on my journey. Uh, I've spoken to numerous Christians who found it helpful for them. I really encourage you to check it out if you want to investigate these things. Secondly, if you read that book and you still want more or you don't like reading and you want to go to a place where you can ask questions, in a month's time, in March, at the start of March, we'll be having a series called Introducing Jesus where we investigate these things in greater detail together. You'll be able to ask whatever questions you have. You'll be able to, you know, if you read this book, you can ask all the curly questions that come up from this book. Um, Please chuck that in your calendar. We're kicking off March the 10th. It's a Thursday evening uh, and you can find out some more details if you join us on Facebook or on our website or something like that. But it's another place that you can investigate Jesus. And we encourage everyone who walks through our doors to investigate these things for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Investigate these things. So there's some proof. I'm not going to pretend it's, it's enough proof for you. It, it might be, and that's wonderful. It might not be. But there's some proof. If you're not yet convinced, and that's totally okay, what I ask you to do now is, as I move into the rest of what we're saying today... Just put your doubts to the side for just one moment and listen to Jesus' teachings as if they're true. Because when you do that, you'll be able to hear the implications of what he has to say for us. And, and you know, uh, when we do question and answer, you, you can ask all your questions with, with all, your, um, all the things you're investigating, that's totally fine. But just listen as if it were true. And you might find some of these things still quite compelling. 
So as I move into my second point, what I want you to see is there are two destinations after this life. Jesus teaches about two destinations. And here I want to focus on the, the other story we read in the Bible. The other story from uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew is one of our accounts of Jesus' life, one of those biographies I mentioned earlier. And Jesus says in this short story, he says, there are two groups of people that will be divided into two destinations. How about, I just quickly reread it so it's fresh in our memories, it's really short. This is the words of Jesus teaching his followers and he says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets, but tossed away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see there are two destinations. One's called the kingdom of heaven and one is a blazing furnace of fire. And it, and it says how do you go to either destination is based on how you live, whether you're wicked or you're righteous, whether you've lived a life of wickedness or a life of righteousness. That's the criteria for sorting. Jesus teaches elsewhere what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is perfect, it's paradise where all things are made new, where there's no more suffering, no more pain, where we'll be with our Lord and our Saviour forever, be with our God who loves us dearly. But the wicked, they're thrown into the furnace of fire. They are burned up. It's what the Bible calls hell. There are two destinations, heaven and and hell. That's the reality that Jesus teaches us. And there is a big problem for us. Jesus teaches that there is a big problem for us. You see, to to live the righteous life, we have to be perfectly good. We have to be absolutely pure, which is an impossible standard. God's standard is that we live every moment of our life acknowledging Him as God, living the life He calls us to live of absolute perfection and purity. But we fail to do that. We know that nobody's perfect. Nobody can live up to that perfect standard. I stuff up daily. I I stuff up hourly. I can't live up to that standard and I'm sure you feel the same. That standard is impossibly high. And so the question is, how is that fair? How is it fair that God can set an impossibly high standard and just toss everyone else into that blazing furnace? It certainly seems unfair, doesn't it? But we must remember who God is and who we are in relation to Him. The Bible teaches us that God is perfectly good, that He is perfectly pure. The Bible's word for that is holy. God is holy, perfect. There's not one spot, not one blemish, not one impurity in Him. So our standard is actually who He is. Our standard of perfection comes from who He is. He's the perfect holy God. And because He is so perfect and so holy, 
we must understand that the severity of our sentence, the blazing furnace, actually depends on who we've committed the crime against. The crime of not acknowledging God, the crime of not being thankful for Him, the crime of ignoring Him and living our own ways. That crime and the severity of its punishment depends on who God is. Let me, let me explain. Imagine uh, we're, we're done here today, we're outside, we're having a conversation together, you and I are having a conversation. And for whatever reason, I just decide to slap you right across the face. Now, I'm not going to do that, just so don't avoid me afterwards. But imagine I just slapped you right across the face. Now, that is obviously the wrong thing to do. We, we can all agree that that's not nice. The consequences aren't that bad, though. You might never come back to church, okay? But I'm not going to get arrested. I'm not going to get thrown in jail. I'm not going to rot away there for the rest of my days. Imagine instead I'm having a conversation with the Queen of England and I slapped her right across the face. How are the consequences different? Why are they different? It's because it's the Queen of England, isn't it? And it's not that you're worth less than the Queen of England, but that she deserves a certain amount of honour and respect much more than just the regular person. And so, because of who I've committed the crime against, the severity of my punishment is far greater. The severity of my sentence is much more severe. And that's what it's like with God. God is perfect. He is holy, not one blemish. And we bring our imperfect selves into His presence and that's not on. And so, we must burn in the fiery furnace. Our imperfect lives cannot bear to be in the presence of a perfect God. Now, that's not an easy truth to talk about and it's an even more difficult truth to swallow. I completely get that. I've struggled with this myself. I have family whose whose destiny is still yet that fiery furnace. And I I mourn over that and and I desperately don't want them heading there. At one time, I myself was destined for that furnace. But think about it like this. God is actually dignifying our choices. God actually dignifies our choice. If I live a life choosing a relationship with God... And I, live the, and I choose a relationship by living the standard He has called me to live, then God dignifies my response by saying, yes, if you've chosen me, I'll let you be with me. And He has bent over backwards to allow that to happen. We'll see why in a moment. But if I live a life constantly choosing to ignore God and reject Him and say, no God, I don't want you to be any part of my life, then that is what God gives us. That is what the fiery furnace is. That's what hell is. It's God saying, okay, you don't want me? That's fine. Away you go from me. But God is the source of all life and good and joy. And when we reject that source, all that awaits us is a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the reality of it is that God dignifies our choices. He gives us what we ask for. That is our two destinations to choose from and we do choose. We choose where we want to go. But that's not the end of the story. There is good news. We're all destined for hell because none of us can live up to the impossible standard of God, yet Jesus came 
and he offers us eternal life with him forever. This is my third and final point. Once we're done here, I'll I'll happily answer all the questions you have. But just bear with me for these last few minutes. You see, Jesus didn't just come into the world to rub it in that we're all going to hell. He didn't just come say, ha ha, I just come to check in and say, see you later, you're all going to die in the furnace. No, no, Jesus actually came to save us from the furnace. Let me explain with what is probably the most famous verse in the whole entire Bible. John 3.16. In fact, I'll read the next verse as well. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And get this, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did Jesus come into the world? Not to condemn us to the fiery furnace, but to rescue us out of it. To save the world. God loves us. He doesn't want that destiny for us. He wants us to be with him. And so he isn't content to just let us go down our own path towards hell. Instead, he steps into history. The God of the universe becomes a man, becomes a baby, becomes an infant which we just celebrated at Christmas, suffers in this world, grows up in poverty, is tortured and executed in the most excruciating way possible on a cross and dies and then rises back to life so that we might rise back to life with him. You see, what happens when Jesus died on the cross? He actually died the death that we deserved. That's what the fiery furnace is. It is eternal death, eternal destruction. When Jesus died on that cross, he took our death, our punishment in our place so that we wouldn't have to actually face that death. And and before he died on the cross, he actually lived the life that God calls all of us to live. He achieved that perfect standard that nobody else could. And when he dies on the cross, he says, I'm taking your place and you're taking mine. He gives us his perfect life and says, God, that life that I lived, I want you to accept him on that basis. I want you to accept everyone who trusts in me on that basis. Because that's the way that Jesus rescues us, if we trust him, if we believe him. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All we have to do is trust that Jesus died for me. Trust that Jesus died in my place and he will give us the life that we so desperately need. The life that will make us avoid the fiery furnace, but the life that will be with God forever, the source of all joy and happiness and goodness and life. God has done absolutely everything. He did not even spare his own son so that we might avoid hell. All we need to do is trust in him. And so the question today is, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust that he took your punishment, that he took your place, that he stood where you would stand on that final day so that you don't have to? So that as the angels are sorting people, you don't get thrown into the furnace because Jesus has already burnt in the furnace for us. Now, how might you do this? Well, there's nothing externally, magically 
amazing about what you have to do. It is simply this. Tell God that you trust his son Jesus to take the punishment that you deserve. And when we talk to God, we call that praying. So you simply, in the quietness of your heart, you can say to God, God, I'm sorry, I haven't lived up to the standard you've called me to live, but I want to live with you forever. I trust that Jesus has taken my place. And you know what? God promises to answer that prayer, yes. Anytime anyone prays that prayer, God will always say, yes, of course. Welcome home. Come back to me. It is so good to have you back. That is how God responds to that prayer of forgiveness. We can be certain about our destination because Jesus went there and back. He's the expert on life after death and he tells us what happens. So we can be certain that what he says is true and we can be certain about where we're going because Jesus took the punishment we deserve. If that... if you want to make that decision to trust Jesus for the first time today. That is such wonderful news. We're so glad that you want to make that decision. Please do let someone know, whether it's someone who invited you or maybe if you're online, someone who shared the link with you. Or you can always come up and speak to me and let me know. I promise I won't slap you across the face. I'll actually celebrate. Uh, We'd love to help you as you take your first steps on that journey. Please let us know, even if, even if you fill out that communication card, uh, the QR code in front of you again, and just let us know there. That would be really wonderful. But Jesus is the authority on life after death. Jesus really did face death, and he came back. I've shown you some proof of it. Investigate that for yourself. But we can trust what he says about heaven and hell, that it really is true. And we can trust him because he loves us enough to rescue us from hell to face it on our behalf so that we don't have to. Will you trust in Jesus? Let me finish by praying. Father God, thank you that we can have confidence about what happens after this life. Thank you that Jesus has experienced what we can't come back from and that he has come back and he has told us and and shown us that these two destinations await us. But thank you, Father, so much that You weren't content to just let us be on our destiny towards that fiery furnace, but that you sent your son. You didn't even spare your one and only son so that we might be rescued from hell to have eternal life with you forever. Our source of joy and life and goodness and hope. Help us trust in Jesus all the days of our life. Amen. Thanks, Tim. As Tim said, there's an opportunity now for you to ask any questions that you might have. Uh, If you're watching online, you can do that by typing them in the chat. We can access those as well. Uh, If you're here in person, feel free to just wave your hand around, call them out. I'll repeat the questions so that people online can hear them as well. Uh, There's no question too silly or insignificant. So let us know if you've got any. I'll start with one. Tim, uh, you mentioned that the apostles uh, and Jesus' disciples were willing to die for believing uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. There's other people, uh, comes to my mind, uh, Muslim people, for instance, who are willing to die for what they believe, which is different to what we believe. 
Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, people are willing to die for their beliefs if the belief is strong enough, right? And so I'm not discounting the belief of, for example, uh, Muslim men and women who give their life for what they believe. They really believe it to be true. The question is, is it really true? And so it's on us to investigate that properly. So it's on us to investigate the claims of Christianity. Are they true or not? And it is actually on us to investigate the claims of believers who die for other beliefs. It may be worthwhile you investigating the claims of Islam. That's, that's a good thing to do because just like with Christianity, you can engage your mind to determine whether there is truth there or not. And if you engage with Christianity and explore the beliefs and conclude that it's false, that is a good thing for you to do. And it's the same as if you engage other beliefs that people hold so strongly they're willing to die for. If you engage with those beliefs and determine them to be true, then that's good as well because you've arrived at the truth. I'm personally just of the opinion that the beliefs central to Christianity are true and the beliefs central to Islam are not. I hope that's helpful. Yep. Yep, we got one from online. Okay, so believing, serving, trusting, following God uh, is the best way to live and there's evidence for Jesus uh, that's true. So why aren't there more believers alive? Yeah, good question. It is really helpful um, and there's varied reasons, right? We believe it's the best way to live, but it's not obviously the best way to live. If, if, we, if you don't live with a sense that the stakes are eternal life or hell, then you're not going to make radical decisions like, I'm going to give up my desires to follow the Lord Jesus in heaven. If you don't believe there's something more to this life, Christianity doesn't hold much for you. Yes, I think it can make a lot of sense of what happens in this world, but only in light of the broader realities of there is a heaven and hell and you're going to end up in one of those places uh, and you need to make a decision about what that's going to be. And so I think for many people, without that eternal perspective, living for the here and now, they invest in things here and now. Uh, so that's part, part, one of the reasons why I think people don't follow Jesus. Another part of the reason is uh, Jesus himself expected that some people would just completely reject the life that he offers and, and the news that he brings because it is so radically different to what we might hope for or expect. And so I'm not surprised to see people not following Jesus because Jesus wasn't surprised to see people not following Jesus. And so as Christians, we need to expect that that's the way of the world. But, but this also touches on this news is life-changing news and I desperately want everyone to hear the news and make a real decision. As I do that, I must expect that some people will go, yes, that's wonderful, Tim, I am in. But I also must expect some people to go, Tim, you're full of it, that doesn't make any sense, I'm not going to believe. I must expect that as I desperately go out to see people hear this news. Um, so there's, there's two reasons. There's more reasons, I'm sure, but I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I completely agree that it is the best life to live, it's why I'm living that life. And it's tragically sad that more people aren't living this life. 
but it's not unexpected. Great question. Have we got any other questions? No, we might leave it there. As Tim said, feel free to catch him after the service uh, and ask any other questions you might.